Some of the most common misconceptions are, first, is that bilingualism can cause language delays. I don't know how many times I have heard this misconception in my entire practice, which is, I think, linked to the second most common misconception, which is that bilingualism can cause confusion. I'm Michelle, and this is the Pep Talk Podcast for Continuing Education. This podcast provides furthering knowledge on topics related to speech-language pathology. I interview experts in our field to bring you the most up-to-date information so you can go out into your workplace and feel more confident and learn new skills. You can use this episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. This course is also certified by the Texas Speech and Hearing Association, also known as TISHA. You must complete the course quiz with a passing score to earn your certificate of completion. You can find more information, other courses, and helpful tools on my website, peptalkpodcastforslps.com. Connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, or email me at michelle at peptalkpodcastforslps.com. I love hearing from you guys. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. Pep Talk Podcast, its host and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during the episodes unless otherwise stated. Each episode topic has been carefully chosen to fill an educational need. If you have an additional perspective or any information to contribute, or if you need special accommodations to participate in this course, please reach out at info at peptalkpodcastforslps.com. This entire episode is transcribed if you would like to or need to read this episode in text. Hey there, I'm Michelle Andrews, and I'm your host for the Pep Talk Podcast. This episode is about supporting language development for children who are bilingual and or multilingual. There are so many myths that are common surrounding this topic, and my speaker today is going to bust those myths and help direct us to how we can support bilingualism. My speaker today is Monica Molmisa. Hi there, Monica. Hi. Hi, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Hi. Let me just tell everyone a bit about you. Um, Monica is a bilingual speech and language pathologist in the Philippines, certified under the Philippine Association of Speech and Language Pathologists. She graduated from the University of the Philippines, Manila, in 2012 and has been practicing since then with the pediatric population from pre-K to 12. She also took an AAC certification course in 2017 and has been practicing as an AAC specialist since 2018. Um, First, though, we need to go over some formalities for the course by going over our financial disclosures. My financial disclosures include... I have a Teachers Pay Teachers, Boom Learning, and Teach with Medley store, all under Pep Talk LLC. I am also the founder and manager of Pep Talk and the Pep Talk podcast, and Teach with Medley is also a sponsor for this podcast. My non-financial disclosures include, I have a stock participation plan with Teach with Medley. Monica's financial disclosures include, um, <clears throat> she has a Teachers Pay Teachers, Boom Learning, and Made by Teachers store under Momisa Ventures Corporation, and her store names are Speak and Teach PH. Monica's non-financial disclosures include she is on the Boom Learning Advisory Board for 2022 to 2023. She's an admin of Speech Therapy Support and Tips for Filipino Families Facebook group. Now, here are the learner objectives for this course. 
Um, number one, list two common myths of bilingualism and multilingualism. Define code mixing and code switching and state why it happens. And give an example of how we can support bilingualism. Okay, let's get started. Today we are talking all about bilingualism and multilingualism. This can sound overwhelming at first, and we might even still believe some of those myths about language development with more than one language at a time. But Monica here is going to help shed some light on all those myths and, and share the truth. I am so excited to introduce today's guest speaker, Monica Malmisa. Hi there again, Monica. Say hi again for us. Hi again, everyone. I'm so, so excited to be here. And thanks, Michelle, actually, for having me for this podcast episode. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we have rescheduled this so many times. The time difference is, what, about 12 hours? <laughs> it's morning for me. It's night for you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. And but we are here. We finally did it. We found a time that works. And um, I'm so excited to learn from you, Monica. So I gave a, a little bio about you, but can you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay, so I think it has been mentioned that there is a about 12 or 13 hour difference. That's because I was born and I grew up and lived in the Philippines all my life. So just to explain if you're not familiar where the Philippines is or what the Philippines look, looks like. So Philippines is actually an archipelago. It's a country in Southeast Asia. And usually foreigners come here for beaches because we have great beaches here. So if you have heard Palawan probably or Boracay, those are some of our famous beaches. And we have um, 7,600 or more islands that are broadly categorized into three main geographical divisions, which is Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. So I'm explaining this because it has something to do with the language. Like, why is it our topic for today? Why is bilingualism and multilingualism our topic for today? Uh, again, although Filipino is our national language, we have many ethnic groups, and mostly these ethnic groups have their own language. For example, we have the three main geographical regions, right? Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. Just in Luzon alone, we have five major languages, which includes, for example, Bicolano in the Bicol region, one of the regions. We have Ilocano somewhere in the north, Pangasinense, Kapampangan in central Luzon, and of course, Tagalog, which is the foundation of the Filipino language, our major language. Um, since it's, uh, it's the foundation, uh, the difference is, is that it has some borrowed Spanish words, especially that we have been, um, of course, in the past, there's a history that the Spaniards has been here. So aside from these language, our primary medium of instruction is English and Filipino. Mostly, we actually mostly use English whenever we are in an academic setup. So that's why English and Filipino mostly are our national languages. So I grew up and lived in a country that are, that is mostly bilingual and multilingual. And as a speech pathologist, I think this is one of our challenge that we have to consider all of these factors whenever we are dealing with a child. It's quite common that we SLPs would meet a child wherein they have a parent which is Filipino or English speaking and then there would have a nanny. It's not in the Philippines. The setup is not like in the U.S. We're in. Sometimes the babysitter would just go in and then they would leave and then they would leave the house. But 
most of the times, the nannies here live with the family of the child. So, which means that the child already has direct exposure with what language the nanny is carrying. So, it's quite common wherein the, the parents have, for example, Filipino and English as their language. And then the nanny would come in and they then they would have a different language, mm-hmm. which wherein the nanny communicates usually and mostly with the child most of the time. So, I believe these are the circumstances that got me interested with language and linguistics in general and with the topic itself. I believe that language itself is beautiful. And it's beautiful because it is is intrinsic to the expression of our culture. It expresses our culture. It connects us to our heritage and it allows us to communicate our different beliefs and customs. So, that's just a bit of my background just to understand and explain a bit where am I coming from. So there. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you for explaining that and letting us know where you come from and what the language is like, where you're from. And really, that's how you have so much experience on this topic. You are very well versed in what it's like to grow up in a multilingual culture. And all the speech therapy kiddos that you see are in the same situation, you know, hearing more than one language. That's so, so perfect. So I think there, we've gone over this a little bit, Monica, but I I think there's a lot of information swirling around that isn't accurate. I know lots of parents, you know, maybe believe some of these things, even some speech language pathologists. Let's go over some of those common myths when it comes to bilingual and multilingualism. Okay, so yeah, there are lots of myths circulating about bilingualism and multilingualism. And sadly, it even, um, it is circulating not just around the field but even in our field so um, some of the most common misconceptions are first is that bilingualism can cause language delays i don't know how many times i have heard this misconception in my entire practice which is i think linked to the second most common misconception which is that bilingualism can cause confusion so let me back up a bit and uh, just explain further like how can we bust these myths? I remember countless encounters wherein a parent or teacher would ask me if having a language exposure to different languages at home confuses the child. And as a result, it causes language delays. And it's sad that they heard these misconceptions sometimes even from professionals like doctors, wherein, of course, they are doctors, so they, the, the families would probably believe these misconceptions. But I would always tell them that, number one, there is no empirical evidence that says bilingualism can cause language delays. On the contrary, the research is clear that bilingual infants readily distinguish their two languages and show no evidence of confusion, even if you expose them to these different languages. And the thing is that if a child is a late talker, the child is delayed whether or not the child has exposure to one or more languages. And we should take note that if a child does have a delay, it will usually occur not just in one language, but in both languages. So you could see that bilingualism does not have something to do with delays or disorders. That if a child is delayed, usually it would present in both languages, not just in one language. All the more, we know the difference between delays and disorders, right? So... Even children with language disorders, in fact, are capable of learning more than one language. So we should not discount and we should always presume competence that these children can actually learn more than one language, even though they have delays or disorders. So the second thing that I always tell them is that 
Even though bilingual children may mix up grammar rules or sometimes they would interchangeably use two languages in a single conversation, it does not mean that they are confused. In fact, it is common and it is a normal stage of biling- of the bilingual child's development. So, it's actually just common. It's normal. It's natural. And this is especially true for school-aged children, for preschool-aged children. As the language mixing stage is most often occurring or it occurs mostly between the ages of 2 to 4 years old. So as long as you give them lots of rich linguistic input and provide them with good language models, you're good. Again, I've mentioned that it's sad that these misconceptions that that circulates our field is quite common and sometimes you even even hear it from some professionals which the, the result is that the pair some of the parents it's sad because some of the parents would even inhibit themselves from using their native tongue around the child especially when they hear the advice of the other professionals this is on top of that sometimes they would say that maybe we should just use english perhaps not just use the native tongue wherein they are more comfortable using their own native language this is also on top of the, again, what I, I mentioned previously, that English is their primary medium of instruction in school. And usually, the, the grammar rules in English are easier to teach than our own use, than our own native language. Which brings us to our third myth. The third myth probably that I would um, mention in this podcast is that there is a myth that when you reduce to one language, it will actually improve the child's chance of success in language learning. I can't remember how many times I've been told that we should focus on just one language. Just one language. Probably, let's just not expose the child. While there is no evidence indicating that limiting a bilingual child to one language will improve the child's chance for success, there is no evidence if it does anything, it might even cause more difficulties for the child and the whole family in the whole ra- in the long run, I mean. For example, um, there is one instance wherein I received a child for evaluation and the parent disclosed that they've tried to implement only one language at home. And that child has a language disorder. While it worked for a while, Again, the nannies live with them. It was not sustainable in the long run since when the parents would leave the child to the caregivers, the child would still have other language exposure since the nannies were not fluent in English. So that's the, the, the parents were, were mentioning that they are only imposing one language at home. So in stories as such, we can see the difficulties and the impact it might cause in the long run when you inhibit the use the, the the language that you are comfortable with. The advice always is to use the language that you are comfortable with. We are here. We use language for us to be able to communicate. So you should always use the language you're most comfortable with. Because aside from the emotional and the psychological difficulty it can cause to the family, if you inhibit them to use what they are comfortable with, it can cause difficulty because they are unable to communicate the child and the child in the long run might even feel more isolated and from being unable to connect with the family. So these three are some of the most common misconceptions, I guess, that we need to address. So first one, that bilingualism can cause 
can cause language delays. Number two, that bilingualism can cause confusion. And then the third one, that reducing to one language will improve the child's chance for success in language learning. So these are some of the most common misconceptions that we have to bust. So there. Thank you, Monica. You explained that so well. And really, that's such a good point about how that could really just derail the culture and just the what's natural for that family and how that could actually cause more issues and just not be the best environment for the child's learning. That's That makes total sense. So when a child or a person um, uses more than one language in the same sentence or in the same um, conversation. There's some terms for that. There's two terms that I want us to go over. They can be a little bit confusing. So I would like for you to explain them a little bit further and then let us know kind of how and why they are used. Okay, sure. So I think those common terms that we usually need to explain is that what is the difference between code switching and code mixing, right? So mm-hmm. here's how code switching and code mixing are defined by literature. So let's take first code switching. Code switching from the word itself, code switching. Code switching is the ability to switch or to change between two or more languages in a conversation. Usually, an example of this is when a speaker starts with one language and then ends the conversation with another language. You just switch between the two languages. So that's code switching. Code mixing, on the other hand, refers to the transferring of linguistic or grammatical elements from one language to another. So it's really mixing languages. So one example, perhaps, that I would... uh, give for code mixing, I hope you would be able to visualize it, is from a child, a child of a colleague of mine, actually. So the child is a neurotypical four-year-old girl. And it's funny because since the child is a colleague, a speech and language pathologist, so the mother usually keeps a log of her language sample. So I would see the development as well from time to time. So it's quite interesting how the child progresses in terms of language. So for you to understand the exchange, I will explain also a bit of our language. So in Filipino, so in English, right, we have this base base form of the verbs wherein you attach uh, the prefixes or the suffixes. So it's either um, when you attach a prefix or a suffix, it changed the meaning of the whole word. Um, in our culture or in our language, we can transform verbs to nouns, actually, when you add a prefix or an infix. Usually, it's not really a suffix, but we usually have infix. So, within the word, we have like um, um, some of those words in, as infix. And then, it changed the whole meaning. So, in terms of morphology, we have to like consider those as well. So, back to the story. Um, so, in the, in the exchange, the Filipino used was the word tapon. Tapon in English means throw, as in throw the garbage. So the correct form of the Filipino word, if you are referring to a garbage collector, someone who throws garbage, is tagatapon. So it means in English, direct translation is the one who throws, if you are to translate it directly. So here's how the bilingual child says it in one of the exchange. Mommy, the taponers came here and taponed. I mean, take away the box. So again, mommy, the taponers came here and taponed. I mean, take away the box. So it's, it's actually mostly in English, but it has some Tagalog. The, the child code mixes there. 
So, if you were to analyze the child's utterance, again, the Filipino word was tapon or throw. That's the base form. So, instead, because the child doesn't know what the, the English term for a garbage collector is, so we know that in English, if you add the suffix er at the end of the word, it usually denotes a person. Like, for example, paint to painter. So, because the child knows that grammar rules and she doesn't know the term for English, so she used taponers as the subject. And then tapon, we know that the exchange that the child was telling uh, a story about a garbage collector collecting the garbage and then throwing it, taking the box away. So we know that tapon, when you add ed to it, is that it makes it a past tense. So the child, that's a, that's a clear example of code mixing. So now, um, you're asking, uh, why do people code switch or code mix? I think from one of the exchange, one of the common reason is that why we do code mixing or code switching. Number one is that there is no exact words or similar word in the language. So code mixing or code switching sometimes is there to fill a gap. So some example, for example, in our, in our culture, there is no direct translation for juice. So juice, we, we usually, we borrowed it from English. Then we use it directly in, even in Tagalog. So since we don't have a direct term, so let's buy juice. Bili tayo ng juice. So that's a direct translation of it. Take supermarket again, for example. So when we have supermarket here, um, we have the terms palengke and pamilihan. So palengke is a market that's the wet market, pamilihan, to describe the market itself. But it's not actually the same term as supermarket as in the retail store in the mall wherein you buy groceries or food. So come to think of it, code switching and code mixing in Filipino are so common that we have another term for the language. Actually, we have this term, taglish, in our country. Taglish means Tagalog and English, wherein you combine. It's so common here. Like, code mixing is so common that we have a term called taglish. Or as conventional writers or linguists would say, conversational Tagalog. So, that's how common it is in our, in our country. So, as earlier, it's not only in English that we have borrowed terms. So we also have Spanish words that are borrowed and incorporated in our Filipino culture. Some of those words that we have borrowed are, for example, Encanto. You know, Encanto the, from the film <laughs> Encanto. So it, which means spell or enchantment. In Tagalog, we usually refer it to as an elf, fairy, or maybe a duende or dwarf. So that's, uh, that's how we refer to as Encanto. We also have Jefe as in, in Spanish as Jefe de Police or the head of the police. That's actually a borrowed term as well. So we use that in our Filipino language. So because there is a lack, there is no direct translation, we actually borrow language. And sometimes it mixes in our language as well. So that is that is one of the reasons why, why code switching or code mixing happens. Another reason why, why code switching or code mixing happens is that number, number two is that for social reasons, such as to express a group identity or intimacy. Because there are some words, for example, that can only be found in certain cultures. Code switching, therefore, is needed to express local reality, such as there are food words, such as, um, and culture-specific lexical terms. For example, food words such as adobo, lechon, sausawan. Sausawan is dipping sauce. We don't usually 
term is at, at dip, as dipping sauce. So, we would refer to it as sausawan. So, that's food terms. For example, we have familial terms as well as ate, kuya. Ate is, I'm not, in English, it's, it doesn't, usually when you have a brother, you don't call them as ate or kuya if it's, if it's older. So we have that here. We usually have a level, usually. So an older sister is an ate, an older brother is a kuya. So it's much like similar in the Chinese culture wherein they have words like aya, or the el that's the eldest brother in in Chinese, or they have achi, that's the eldest sister in Chinese. So they have those kinship terms. Another example that is really um, part of our culture, and which is why we do code switching or code mixing, is to express respect to the elderly because we are really. Like, it's a big thing for us if you are older in terms of age. We really give respect to them. That is why in our language, we have words like po or opo to denote respect for the elderly. So, we, it's common for you to to hear something like, thank you po. So, thank you is you're giving, um, you're giving respect. You're saying thank you to someone who's older. So, it's quite common for you to hear that. So, those are the first two reasons. Another reason is that for pragmatic reasons, such as when you are narrating, when you're protesting, or you're giving emphasis, sometimes you would repeat something, you will directly translate it in another language just for you to reiterate a point. So bottom line, whenever people do code switching or code mixing, it is to provide the fastest, the easiest, and the most convenient way of saying things. So, in, in, in our natural language, we do code switching or code mixing because that's our most comfortable way in doing so. So, those are some of the things why we do code switching and code mixing. So, I hope you get from all of those examples that I yeah. provided. Yes, thank you for explaining all of that. And really, it sounds like code mixing and code switching is actually very impressive. It's such quick thinking, you know, on, you know, in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a thought, just bringing in another word that just helps make the point easier. Or maybe if there's not a word for it in your language, oh, I'll just pick a word from another language. It just sounds very impressive to me, actually. That's very, very good to know for therapists working with families that are bilingual or multilingual. Um, to know kind of the why, uh, what's what's kind of going on code switching or code mixing. That's very helpful to know. Thank you. So when we're working with a family that is multilingual, what are some ways that we can respond um, as someone is code switching or code mixing? What are things that we can do um, to respond appropriately? Okay, so when someone does code switching or code mixing, you should remember the triple A approach. So just for you to remember it quickly, I would call it the triple A approach. Just to strengthen the child's vocabulary in one language. For example, you're working on one language. You can use this approach when someone does code mixing or code switching. The first one is to attend, then acknowledge, and then amplify. When I say attend, you should observe the child's utterances. Obs investigate the function and its meaning like why is the child code uh, mixing or code switching is it because the child doesn't know the specific term in english or there is a specific term in a certain language so you should investigate in its function and meaning so once you have 
observe and attended to it, you should acknowledge it, of course. It's important to always, in any in any circumstance, that we acknowledge and recognize the child's communicative attempts. In any case, it, of course, builds confidence for the child to learn another language. It builds them up whenever we acknowledge them. So, acknowledge what the child is saying either through commenting or through answering the, their questions as long as we respond to them. Even just affirm them it's important that we acknowledge them. And then the third one is, if, for example, there's a knowledge gap or a gap in terms of a vocabulary, we should build on the child's words by modeling in the target language. Use a vo- new vocabulary or words that perhaps your child is not f- familiar with just so we can build up and strengthen the child's language. So those are some of the things that we can do to respond when a child code mixes or code switches. Okay, perfect. I love a good alliteration there. Attend, acknowledge, amplify. <laughs> that that's going to that's going to stick in my head. That's a perfect way to to remember that. That's perfect. Um okay, so when a child does have a language delay or disorder or does have some sort of diagnosis, are there any negative impacts on language development when presented with more than one language? I know we talked about a, a lot of myths about it, but can you just go over could there be could there be anything negative there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have gone over there, but again, let me emphasize that bilingualism does not cause language delay or disorder. And bilingualism does not cause confusion even if a child is presented with other diagnosis or if a child is autistic. Current research shows that speaking to children with other diagnosis in one or two or more language does not result in additional language delay. So again, even if you talk to a child which has another diagnosis, it will not cause an additional delay if you speak to them or you expose them to two or more language. This means that all child, regardless of the diagnosis, can learn more than one language. In fact, um, most of the clients I see here are autistic and they manage to be more fluent in Tagalog and Filipino and English. So they are mostly bilingual. And if a bilingual child presents a language or disorder, the difficulties, again, I mentioned this earlier, that difficulties will be present in both languages. So it's important to note also that bilingual children children with significant uh, with significant language impair- impairments does not mean that they are more challenged that they are more disadvantaged than those monolingual children so again it's just even it doesn't do anything the current the research tells us that bilingualism does not cause additional delays or disorders and that they are not more challenged or at a disadvantage than monolingual children Perfect. Yes. All right. I I feel like we just can't reiterate that enough. <laughs> I think that's just such a common uh, myth that that a lot of people think, and um, it's just so great to to really really reiterate the truth there. That's so perfect. Thank you. So since there are no negatives, let's go over some more of the benefits. Actually, that all children children with any diagnosis with autism, what are some benefits actually to learning more than one language? Yeah. In terms of benefits, learning more than one language could be beneficial to children with autism for the following reasons. First is that bilingual environments are helpful in developing better perspective taking. So, I mean, perspective taking, by being bicultural, it means you're exposed to two cultural systems 
two cultural systems of different rules, of different beliefs, of different customs. Thus, being bilingual is actually helpful in becoming more aware that the situations may be viewed from different perspectives in which people might or might not share the same perspective as them. So, it's actually quite helpful. Number two, if a child is raised in a bilingual environment, it will allow them to also use gesture and to communicate it will allow the child to use more gestures to communicate their needs and wants. Researchers have reported bilingual bilinguals using language. Um, researchers have reported this that usually bilinguals are seen to have more language specific gestures in other language. In addition, in addition to this, bilinguals have been shown to use gestures more often than, than monolinguals. So, in terms of that, they learn more gestures. The third one could be that caretakers interacting in their native language may be able to be more responsive, use an increased variety of communication functions, convey more nuisance emotions, and expand on topics of interest, which can lead to better language modeling from the caretaker to the child, which means that... Um, of course, if you're using your own language, you're able to convey more ideas, you're more comfortable expressing your thoughts to expand topics of interest. And of course, you are able to show more nuisanced emotions. So it's more natural, which be, which gives more um, language exposure and better language modeling to the child. So that's the third advantage. The fourth one is that bilinguals can help build more meaningful relationships at home. Of course, if you expose them to more language and if the family is using another language, if the child is excluded from the language at home, it might exacerbate the feelings of being different or being left out. If they don't know how to speak the language, they might feel more left out or that they don't fit in the family. So if the child is able to communicate with them, the more that they can interact with the family, so the child can also participate in family gatherings and might benefit from the enriched cultural identity. So those are some, actually, of the benefits that a child can have if they are exposed to bilingual or multilingual environments. Sounds like those are such important specific benefits. That's very helpful in understanding. So what are some tips you would give to parents and professionals then? Mm -hmm. So regarding the tips, uh, let me start with the professionals first. So here are some general tips, especially when assessing a bilingual child, especially again, if the SLP is monolingual. So number one is that in any, in any, in any circumstance, the case history is very important. A family or a caregiver interview is needed to determine the culture and linguistic biases of the child. So make sure you gather extensive case history. And some of the most important information that you would get from a case history is that, number one, the number of known language. So how many languages are known at home? The second one is that the age and timing of acquisition, especially if the language is acquired through spontaneous or sequential acquisition. So when I say um, spontaneous, usually it's the one the languages that we acquire uh, before the age of three, or usually when we say is spontaneous, is this the native language of the child or the L1 or the L2? When I say sequential, usually it's the one that's taught in the school. So 
So it's the probably they have, have acquired the language through formal schooling, like they learned it in school, or maybe they migrated after the first language of the child has been established. So you need to know the age and timing of acquisition. The third one is the child's proficiency per language. That can be done not only through questionnaires, but direct observation. So we can observe a child's uh, proficiency, like how well-versed a child, how fluent is the child for a certain language. And then the fourth one is the child's performance in terms of comprehension and production. Is it the same? Maybe the child can understand one language, but they cannot speak the language during that particular instance. So how is the performance in terms of comprehension and production? The fifth one probably is the child's performance in terms of oral, written, or signed language. Of course, we have differences like some, pe some people are better in, in terms of writing than communicating. So how is the performance? And it's not only these factors that we should consider. During case history taking, we should always remember the environmental factors as well, such as the language exposures in school and the, in the community. Probably the family doesn't speak the certain language, but the community is, um, the child is exposed in a community that speaks a different language. Number two is that the language attitude, like, how is the family viewing a certain language? The third one is the the amount of input or of language. So how is the input? So what is the language usually being spoken to the child? The, the, the fourth one is that the academic performance for each language. So this is important because um, as Greg and McLeod said, there is no such thing as balanced bilinguals. Even though we can be bilinguals, there's not no such thing as balanced bilinguals. So there is always proficiency in certain areas. We are more proficient in certain areas than another area. So we should always consider this factor. So after you have taken the case history, so a second tip for professional is that if an SLP is monolingual or does not speak the bilinguals, bilingual child's language, you can actually ask the help of an interpreter as much as possible. You use an interpreter or get an interpreter that is outside the family circle to avoid the bias. And it's important because the interpreter can provide us key information such as in terms of intelligibility and in terms of grammar formulation. So the interpreter can say something like, it was hard to understand the child using this language or the child does not use much prepositions in terms of these language. So if, if we're not uh, well-versed in a certain language and the child is speaking in another language, so we can ask the help of an interpreter. And then the third one, the third tip probably, is that regarding assessment, some of the barriers include Probably. <laughs> it, and it's very, um, it's very evident in our, um, in our society, actually, in our country, that in terms of assessment, one of the barriers is that there are unavailable formal tests that is accessible in all languages. Like some tests would be only available in English, or if you were conduct to, work, to conduct formal testing, it's only available in this and this language, but not in this language. And of course, there are lack, 
oh, there is a lack of developmental norms. So, it should be noted that the norms of the monolingual versus multilingual children are different. And that the norms on the monolinguals cannot be applied to bilingual. So, it's an important thing to note that when you're um, assessing the child, you cannot apply the norms of the monolinguals to the bilinguals. So, again, given these barriers, what's the work around? So, in terms of the first one, that there, there is an unavailability of formal assessment, SLPs can use highly pragmatic tests if the formal or standardized test is unavailable in the child's primary language. So, these tests will help determine the child's grasp of the conversational language, which is the first building block to more complex language. And then, of course, it's very important, take lots and lots of language samples in any communication evaluation. So, and then, the second one, how what's the work around in terms of the norms? When comparing, make sure that the bilinguals should be compared with age match, typically developing bilinguals from a similar background. So make sure that it's the same background, that you don't compare the bilingual child to a monolingual child, especially if they have different backgrounds. And then fourth one, which is, I think, very important. Of course, there's a lack of, and you can get all the information just from one assessment. The fourth one, which is, I think, we should we should apply in terms of assessing a, a bilingual child is that it is always best to employ a dynamic assessment. So this should involve a pretest of the skill, an intervention to address the skill, then a post test to determine if the skill wa- did progress. So just do a dynamic assessment so that you would see the changes in ch- in the child over time. And then so that's for assessment. So in terms of the intervention, so again. The bilingual SLPs may not always be available. So, of course, even though we're seeing a child, it's not always that we see bilingual SLPs. So, the clinician could, should consider both his or her language proficiency in the target language and the language demands of the client and the family. So, consider, can we take this child, um, what is the, ch- the language target of the f- client or the family? So, Am I proficient to take this child? So, we should consider these factors. For the second one is that if an SLP is bilingual, the SLP can choose to conduct the intervention in either the first language of the child, a learned language, or a multilingual intervention. When I say multilingual, they can use the the two languages. So, with this, consider the following when selecting the language for therapy. So, the first one, what's the language history of the child? Number two, the frequency of using each language. The third one is the proficiency in each language in terms of comprehension and expression. Number four is the environmental factors, both the context and the partners. Of course, it should be consistent that the child would be able to have those access if you are targeting a certain language. And then five is family goals. And then the third tip probably for the intervention, which I said earlier, that is is that if you're an SLP, use the language that you're most comfortable with. So, of course, you should consider that when taking also uh, a client for therapy. So, now, for the parents and other professionals, here are some general tips. Number one, I think this is quite easy to remember. So, the first few tips are more technical, but for in, in terms of uh, parents and other professionals, so it's quite easy. So, three things. Be intentional. 
be consistent, be persistent. Number one, be intentional in teaching multiple languages. Number two, be consistent even when code mixing and code switching are present. So, again, always model, 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 model the target language. And then the third one is be persistent. So, even if your child's proficiency or skills may fluctuate over time in his two or more languages, some fluctuations are normal as the child is learning to navigate between both languages. So, just persistent in giving them models. Allow them to have space for growth. Be persistent because sooner or later, we will see those progress. So, those are some tips that we can give to parents or professionals dealing with bilingual or multilingual children. That's great, Monica. And straight from the ASHA website, this is what it says. It asks, who can provide speech-language pathology services to bilingual clients? It varies, is what Asha says, depending on each client's abilities in their first language and their second language. Bilingual clinicians with the necessary clinical expertise to treat the specific client might not be available. So obviously, try your best to find someone that does speak their language. But Asha does explain that sometimes that's not the case. There actually are circumstances where a non-native or near-native speaking clinician will use their speech-language pathology skills to provide services to a client. The clinician considers both his or her own language, proficiency in that target language, and the language of the client and family. Another good option when a bilingual SLP is not available is to use an interpreter. And just a reminder from the ASHA Code of Ethics, SLPs are obligated to provide culturally and linguistically appropriate services to their clients and parents, regardless of the clinician's personal culture, practice setting, or caseload demographics. It also states individuals shall engage in only those aspects of the profession that are within the scope of their professional practice and competence, considering their level of education, training, and expertise. So we must consider if we are competent and have the ability to best treat the client. So yes, if there's not a bilingual clinician available and you feel that you have the competence and the training and the abilities to treat this client, then you absolutely can. But you you must ethically meet those standards. Okay, so now that we know how impactful and amazing learning more than one language as a child can be, what are ways that we can support this? So there are a couple of ways on how we can support children learning different languages. First way probably that we can do to support children learning different languages is that Children learn language from hearing language. So again, it would be best to have lots of exposure from everyday routines, even to playtime. So keep speaking your native language daily. Then the more exposure that your child gets, the more opportunities that the child will have to communicate in the native language. So again, so because children learn from hearing, so... Number two, probably the second uh, way that we can support is that model, 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 not model, but don't enforce. Don't force a child to say it. Be acknowledging and supportive. Uh, when a child makes a mistake, simply model the cor- correct production and increase the child's confidence by strengthening the child's vocabulary. Sometimes speaking in another language is difficult because it's fine. It's 
hard to find the words to communicate in. Which this leads to frustration. And of course, when the child is frustrated, the child will have a lack of motivation. So be supportive. Don't enforce. Just be acknowledging and supportive. Just model. And then the third one is build on the child's language. Continue building on the child's language. And fourth, most, most importantly, be patient. We cannot compare a child to another child because every child is unique. And that in their journey, they learn language gradually. So we cannot compare. Just be patient with a child. So these are some of the ways that we can support a child who's learning another language. I was just thinking that you really need to be patient. And, and it's so amazing to hear code switching and code mixing. It's hard enough for me to think of a word just in English. I got like, oh, what's the word for this? You know, and, and it's just so amazing that someone's just indexing more than one language for a word that's yeah. most appropriate. They're so smart to think of all that. Those are all great things to help support more than one language. What are some things that a caregiver of a bilingual child actually should avoid? Mm. So in terms of the things that you should avoid, so that's probably the opposite of the support. So it's important for the caregivers, again, to be encouraging. So some of the things, with that in mind, some of the things that the caregivers should avoid are, number one, to compare your child to another language learner. So children learn language or languages differently. You also have different contexts as a family. Thus, there is no need for you to compare your child with another child. So, if the family feels something that there's there's something wrong or notices a delay or disorder, it's best to have the child assessed by a speech and language pathologist, someone who is actually knowledgeable in the field. So, uh, instead of comparing them, if you feel that there is something wrong, just let them be evaluated. There's no need to compare. The second one is that don't expect per- perfection from a language learner. Learning another language is a skill. Therefore, it needs time and practice to develop. Again, just be intentional, model the target language and vocabulary, then be patient, and then just uh, wait and see for the child to grow. So there, those are some of the things to avoid whenever you're dealing with a bilingual child or multilingual child. Okay, thank you. So you talked about language exposure some a little bit before. What are the best ways to provide language exposure to a child? So in terms of language exposure, so there are a variety of ways. There are different mediums in which we can provide language exposure. We can provide language exposure through the most obvious one, through the family's native language at home. So we provide language exposure there. We provide exposure through Formal education in school, there are some people who even are like even beyond three, three years old who are older or adults already who would get like who would study another language. Let's say French, they would study, for example, a different language. So we could get formal education. So that's another form of language exposure. The third form of language exposure where we can get language exposure is through media or educational applications. So it also includes books, games, of course. So if cor- of course our children are mostly ex- exposed through different um, social media, through bi- different video streaming applications. So these are also a form of language exposure. 
The fourth one is exposure exposure through friends and peers. Like children learn language through their playmates. There are times wherein here we would hear a child speaking another language and it's because we would find out that they are, their playmates is speaking a certain language. And then we could also get language exposure through extended family. There are times wherein here, whenever we send a child to a, a vacation, for example, to go with their grandpas, grandmas, they would come back speaking another, a bit of the language already spoken by the grandparents. So through the ex extended family, we can learn um, language. So these are some of the ways that we can expose a child. So there are different mediums. Monica, this information has been so informative and it's just so important that we bust those myths that are possibly circling around to parents, professionals, everyone around. Um, this has been so helpful for me. I've learned so much already and I think other SLPs will too. This has been so amazing. As we get ready to kind of close out, I wanted to see if you had one last closing statement or pep talk, if you will, um, that you can leave our listeners with. So I guess for a closing statement, just to reiterate, anyone can learn a new language. And when learning or even when teaching a new language, it's important to have a growth mindset. So we know growth mindset. If you think that if, if you have a fixed mindset and think that it's hard, I'm stuck, it's too late to learn a new language, you will really never learn a new language. But if you have that growth mindset in mind, you will understand that everything is a part of the process and that even mistakes are contribute to learning. So if you have that mindset, you will be motivated to learn, to teach, and to acquire new skills, even learning a new language. So perhaps always have that growth mindset in mind. And you can do it. You can learn a new language. Thank you, Monica. That's, that's so helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you learned something today. All of the references and resources throughout the episode are listed in the show notes and also listed on the Pep Talk podcast for SLP's website. If you want to learn more about Monica and bilingualism and multilingualism, make sure to check out her Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook page all at Speak and Teach PH. Monica also creates incredible speech therapy resources that you can find on Boom Learning and on Teacher Pay Teachers. She's often a top selling author listed from the entire platform. So she clearly has a lot of great resources that are well loved by many SLPs already. So if you haven't already, I would definitely go check her out. Once again, speak and teach PH. I'll have those linked on her presenter page on the website as well. She shares helpful resources and information on those pages. Monica, thank you so much again for joining me here today. I have learned so much and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Yeah, thanks again, Michelle, for having me during your podcast. And I had a great time sharing about bilingualism and multilingualism. I hope uh, the audience or the listeners also learned a lot as well. Yes, thank you so much. All right, SLPs and SLPAs, just a reminder that you can get continuing education credit by listening to this podcast, taking the quiz, and earning your certificate of completion. You can use that certificate, hold on to it, and you can, you can submit it to ASHA to maintain your ASHA CCCs. If you live in Texas, you can fill out the form after you complete the quiz, and I will send your TISHA CEU to your TISHA registry. 
This is the end of episode 14. I thank you all so much for your support and for listening along. I can't wait to show you what's in store next. If you don't already, make sure you're following me on Instagram, which is at peptalk4slps. And if you can, I'd sign up for my email newsletter. I will let you know when new episodes drop and occasionally give some discount codes for those of you needing the credit hours. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Pep Talk Podcast. Remember, you can use this podcast episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. You must earn your certificate of completion in order to get credit. This podcast course is also TISHA certified. I live in Texas, so that stands for the Texas Speech and Hearing Association. All the references and information mentioned in today's episode are listed in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or simply want to chat, please email me or find me on Instagram, Facebook, or go to peptalkpodcastforslps.com. Thank you for joining in and for continuing your education with me.